Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. It's a mega church in Denver that uh, many years back, uh, it was written up in the Denver Post about how their pastor had this very extravagant lifestyle and a private jet and all of these materialistic issues going on. But what shocked me even more was the song that the church was singing. It was a 7,000-member church, and they had this huge choir, and, I, and I, I, was, I was shocked at what they were singing. And so a few years back, I actually went to YouTube to make sure I didn't hear it wrongly. And, and actually, as a matter of fact, I went to YouTube and, and found the song. The song that the church was singing was called, It's Coming to Me. And so it was repeated over and over again with this kind of reggae beat. It was a very catchy song, but let me give you the, the lyrics to the song this huge choir was singing and 7,000 people were singing along with them. It's coming to me. I want what's coming to me. I want what's coming to me. I want my joy. I want my peace. I want my money. I want my healing. I want my money. I want what's coming to me. Now, what was even more hilarious, if that doesn't disturb you enough, was at the bottom of the screen, the church's phone number came up. It was literally 1-800-BLESS-ME, okay? So I want what's coming to me, 1-800-BLESS-ME. So next week, this is going to be our praise team song. So Doug, learn this. We're all going to stand. We're going to, I want my money. I want what's coming to me. Sadly, no, I'm just joking. That's not going to be our, our praise song. But, but when you think about it, it's really sad to think about kind of the self-centered culture that we find ourselves in. Everything's about me. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be blessed. God has blessed us with health. God has blessed us with material wealth. God has blessed us with so many things, and we should count our blessings. As the old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one, count your blessings, see what the Lord has done. We are to count our blessings, but I wonder when we think about blessings, and we think about God, give me what's coming to me, God bless me, I wonder if we often think of blessings simply in material terms. I want health, I want wealth, I want prosperity, I want things to go well for me. But I wonder how often we think about the greatest blessing anybody could ever experience. What is the greatest blessing you and I can ever experience? I'm not going to answer that right away because this passage of Scripture does that for us in Galatians chapter 3. What is the greatest blessing? Well, I could tell you it's the blessing of Father Abraham. That makes it more clear, doesn't it? Let's read together. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Just as, or some translations would say consider, just as or consider Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now here's the main point of this passage of Scripture, in this short little passage. It's simply this. When you have faith alone in Christ alone, you receive the wonderful blessing of being counted righteous before God. So what is this blessing that Paul is talking about? It's the blessing of being counted righteous before God, being accepted by God, being permanently accepted and forgiven and righteous before God. That's the greatest blessing. It's a wonderful blessing. Now, what's been the problem we've seen so far in the book of Galatians? What's been their issue? Well, I know we jumped out of it last week, so let me just give you a reminder. Go back to chapter 1, verse 6, and let's see how Paul starts this whole thing. He's, he's getting on the Galatians for a very specific purpose. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished, I'm shocked, I'm flabbergasted that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. They're abandoning the gospel. They're deserting the gospel. They're falling for a false gospel. In chapter 3, verse 1, immediate context, listen to what Paul says just a few verses up to our text this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So the Galatians are being seduced, they're being bewitched, they're being distorted, they're being distracted, they're being tossed into confusion about the gospel. They're being bewitched, they're being seduced. These Judaizers, that's the name of these people, these Judaizers have come along and basically they said, listen Galatians, we think it's really great that you've trusted Christ for salvation, that's excellent. We like that. You've trusted Christ for salvation, that's great. But... If you want to continue in your salvation and you really want to prove your salvation and you want to make sure you get to heaven at the end of your life, trusting Jesus for salvation is a good start. There's nothing against that. But you need to live like a Jew. You need to be circumcised. You need to add kosher dietary laws. You need to follow the law of Moses. So it's not just grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, the Judaizers are saying, yeah, it's, it's faith in Jesus, but you've got to add all of these Jewish things on top of it in order to truly be accepted by God. Now, here's the issue for these Judaizers, these Jewish false teachers. Abraham was their hero of the faith. Father Abraham, he was the father of the Jewish people. He was the first one to be circumcised. From his offspring came the nation of Israel. His was the promise of the promised land. Abraham was the epitome of what it meant to be a child of God. And so the huge question for these Judaizers in their mind is, okay, how does a person truly become a child of God? How do you become a child of Abraham? Well, there's two ways you can become a true child of Abraham, according to these Judaizers. One is by ethnic birth. You're born a Jew, 
Or number two, if you're a Gentile, you can become a son of Abraham by undergoing circumcision and being folded into all of the the laws, the law of, of Moses. So for a Gentile who's not an ethnic Jew, to truly become a child of Abraham and to truly be accepted by God and to truly be part of God's family, it wasn't just faith in Jesus alone. It was was circumcision. That was the epitome of what they thought in Abraham. And Jesus addressed this to the Pharisees of his day in John 8, 39. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Abraham's our father, the Pharisees. We have Abraham as our father. We're we're perfect Jews. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Now what Paul does here is he blows this argument right out of the water. And he's going to turn this hero worship of Abraham on its head and show these Judaizers the true story of salvation because they had elevated Abraham as the be-all, end-all, and they said to be a child of Abraham, to be truly God's family, you had to be circumcised. So what Paul does is he lays forth four arguments. Like a good lawyer who's laying out his case, he lays out four arguments to say, here are the arguments I'm going to give you Judaizers to show you that you're all wrong. So let's look at these arguments. And they're basically in each of the verses we're looking at. So argument one's in verse six, argument two's in verse seven, argument three's in verse eight, and argument four's in verse nine. It's very simple. So here's argument number one that Paul lays forth. The example of Abraham proves that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. So Paul's going to hold up Abraham as the ultimate example of salvation by grace alone. Notice what he says there in verse 6. Okay, this is the very first time Abraham's mentioned in the book of Galatians. So he's bringing Abraham in as the example to these Judaizers who who were holding him up as this model. Just as or considered Abraham, what did Abraham do? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now what is Paul hearkening back to? Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham to go outside and look up at the starry night, the starry sky. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's where Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6, he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, astronomers will tell us on a good clear night with no pollution, like sometimes my son and I used to go out to the reservoir with the telescope, and you can see a lot of things out there. They'll tell you that you could possibly see with the naked eye 6,000 stars on a good night. It's also estimated by astronomers that there are 100,000 million stars just in the Milky Way alone. Outside of the Milky Way, there are millions upon millions of galaxies with billions upon billions of stars. So I don't think God's point for Abraham was to go up there and start counting, okay, number one, number two, number three, till he got to 6,000. I don't think that was the point. The point was, Abraham, look, there are so many stars up there 
that's how many descendants, that's how many offspring you're going to have. And the Bible simply says, Abraham believed God. In the Hebrew text, that means to have a wholehearted, strong conviction, to place strong confidence in God. Now notice, Abraham's not asked to do anything. God doesn't say, hey, Abraham, work for this blessing. Abraham, put your hands to work and get busy so that you can receive this blessing. Do something to earn it. No, Abraham is helpless. He's totally dependent. And humanly speaking, he can't produce these offspring because what's the problem with Abraham? He's got a barren wife and he's 75 years old. The only thing Abraham can do is to believe God. To take God at his word. And when Abraham takes God at his word, God counts that as righteousness. Now, what type of faith did Abraham have? What was this faith that Abraham had when he looked up at the stars and he believed God? Well, number one, it's an acknowledgement of powerlessness. It's an acknowledgement of weakness. It's it's an acknowledgement of of total dependence upon God. Abraham said, listen, if I'm going to have any type of future, if I'm going to have any type of offspring, I've got to believe you, God, because I'm totally helpless here. I can't produce this. Do you have that kind of faith? I'm helpless before you, God. If anything's going to be produced in my life, you're going to have to do it. I am totally helpless. I am totally dependent. I have nothing to offer you. It's basically what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You acknowledge that you're nothing before God and that he's everything. So it was this helpless, bankrupt, dependent type of faith. But it was also a type of faith that said, you know what? I don't see the future. I can't even begin to know how God's going to possibly do this, but I'm taking God at his word because it's God. God, you say I'm going to have numerous descendants like the stars in the sky. I can't see it. I'm way past childbearing age. My wife is barren, but somehow, God, you can do it, and I believe that. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 through 22. No belief, no unbelief, made him waver, this is talking about Abraham, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Here's the point, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was fully convinced. He was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God could do what God promised. Abraham didn't question God. When when, when the fatherly, compassionate God came to Abraham and said, listen, that's your future, Abraham. Abraham didn't quibble with God. He didn't argue with God. He simply believed God, and he was fully convinced. He was fully convinced that it was a biological impossibility. Abraham's thinking, I'm 75 years old. My wife is barren. We've never had any children. And yet, God, I don't even have one child yet. And you're promising me numerous children like the stars on the sky? He was fully convinced that God could do the impossible. 
George Sweeting is a past president of Moody Bible Institute. And one time, he gave a definition of optimism. You want to know what optimism is? Optimism is when an 85-year-old man marries a 35-year-old woman and moves into a 12-room house next to an elementary school. Some of you will get that next week. (laughs) For Abraham... It was more than optimism. It wasn't like Abraham was optimistic. I think this is really going to work out, God. No, it was a settled conviction that he was totally helpless, but yet he knew God could do the impossible. He didn't doubt God's faithfulness. That's the type of faith Abraham had. Now, what did God do? Paul here quotes Genesis. Look here in verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what does it mean it was counted to him? The Hebrew word there means to assign value. In other words, what God did was God assigned a value to Abraham's faith that it was righteousness, that Abraham fulfilled all the requirements of righteousness. It wasn't because Abraham did anything. It wasn't because Abraham earned anything. It wasn't because Abraham had produced anything. Abraham's totally helpless, but because Abraham had faith, God credited that to him. It was almost like God opened up a bank account for Abraham in that moment and said, Abraham, I'm transferring all of this righteousness into your account, even though it's never been there before, and because I'm putting this deposit in your account, you are righteous. It's a gift. Abraham doesn't have to produce it. Abraham can't earn it. God simply gives it to him as a gift. And you know, this type of righteousness, the theological term is imputed righteousness or credited righteousness or or transferred righteousness, whatever you want to say about it, it kind of flies in the face of a lot of what you hear today. Because some people will say this, if you really want to be accepted before God, if you really want to be righteous before God, if you really want to be in God's family, you've got to do some things. There's no such thing as a free lunch. It's not simply believing you've got to earn, you've got to do, you've got to hope at the end of your life your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You've got to do, 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 do in order to earn God's acceptance. This type of righteousness blows that out of the water and says, no, it's not by anything that you do. It's simply by believing. It's faith alone. Other people say, you know what? You've sinned way too much. If you've sinned way too much and you've you've done all these major sins, there's no way you could ever be righteous. You're way too sinful. So you might as well just give up. You might as well just uh, fret and and worry and realize that you're never going to be righteous because you can never get that forgiveness. And Paul says, wait a minute. Even the worst of sinners can be forgiven and given this righteousness by God's amazing grace. So Abraham's faith was this I'm utterly helpless. I'm hopeless. I can't produce the offspring. It's a biological impossibility. But God, because you have told this to me and you are God, I'm simply going to believe you at face value because that's the kind of God you are. And by the way, who are these countless stars that Abraham sees? God says, this is going to be your offspring. Now, at first glance, you may think, okay, that's the nation of Israel. Yes, to an extent, but the book of Revelation gives us some insight into this multitude. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We'll get to this in just a moment, but we are part of that numerous stars in the sky that Abraham saw on that night. So argument number one that Paul says is, listen, Abraham's a test case. He was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Argument number two. Okay, if that's true of Abraham, what about his children? The true children of Abraham are those who've been justified by faith alone. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now remember, what did the Judaizers say? If you're a true child of Abraham, it's not faith alone, it's circumcision. Circumcision or ethnic Jew, being an ethnic Jew is what makes you a true child of Abraham. And Paul says, listen, I'm blowing that argument out of the water. A true child of Abraham has nothing to do with circumcision. It has everything to do with faith. By the way, Paul's going to say, Abraham was counted as righteous way before circumcision was on the scene. Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. Go back and read Genesis. Genesis 15 is what we just looked at. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Fast forward two chapters. Genesis 17 is where God gives him the command to be circumcised. So in the Abraham narrative, Abraham was saved by grace before he was circumcised. Let me just blow this out of the water. Abraham was a Gentile when God saved him. Abraham was saved as a pagan out of Ur of the Chaldees, a moon worshiper, and God saved him by grace. And then, two chapters later, it says, be circumcised. So even in the Old Testament, circumcision is not what saved Abraham. Faith in God is what saved Abraham as a Gentile before he was a circumcised Israelite. Paul again will say this in Romans chapter 4, 9 through 10. How do we know all this? Paul tells us. Romans chapter 4, 9 through 10. 10. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Genesis 15. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. It's important for these Judaizers to hear because Abraham is their standard bearer of what it meant to be a true child of God. And they're they're holding up Abraham. Look, the way to get favor with God is to be like Abraham. And, And how Abraham had favor with God is obviously he was circumcised. And Paul says, listen, way before Abraham was circumcised, he had simple faith alone in God. And it was by grace. And so it was even before circumcision. So why in the world are you making these Gentiles do something that wasn't even true for Abraham, the guy that you're holding up? Paul would say in Romans 2, 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So argument number one, Abraham's your test case. Argument number two, 
The true children of Abraham aren't the ones that are circumcised, but the ones who have faith like Abraham before circumcision, who simply believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here's argument number three. The inclusion of Gentiles into the gospel has always been God's plan of salvation. The Gentiles aren't some afterthought that God said, oh, I think I better, you know, I've got the Jews set apart here, but oh, oh yeah, we've got these other people here. Maybe we've got to figure out what we're going to do with them. Okay, let's go further back in Genesis. Okay, Genesis 17, circumcision. Genesis 15, counted as righteousness, looking at the stars. Genesis 12 is when God first appears to Abraham and gives him the promise the very first time. What does God promise Abraham in Genesis 12? Well, look at verse 8. In Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's a quotation of Genesis 12, 3. In you, Abraham, all the nations, all the Gentiles, all the ethne. It's the Greek word ethne, where we get the word ethnic. All the nations, peoples, tribes, languages, families will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just those who are circumcised, not just Jews, but Abraham. The the point from the very beginning is that in you, Gentiles and Jews alike will be blessed. Genesis 26.4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. Remember that? And I will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations. The goyim in Hebrew. All the goyim, the goy. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so God's plan from the very beginning was that Gentiles would be part of God's plan of salvation through Father Abraham. And this fulfillment that started in Genesis 12 of all the nations being blessed again finds its fulfillment in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From where? From every tribe and language and people and nation that goes back to genesis chapter 12 verse 3 now in verse 8 here in galatians paul uses something that's not used anywhere else in the new testament he says the gospel was preached beforehand to abraham the gospel was preached to abraham have you thought about that i thought the gospel only showed up in the new testament now, does this mean that Abraham knew the specifics of the gospel, that, that, that Jesus, the Messiah, would be Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, Joseph as his father, he would be a carpenter and grow up and die on a Roman cross and raise again three days later? I don't think Abraham had all those details. But I do know this. God preached the gospel to Abraham in what we call types and shadows. Let me ask you a very simple question. What two things need to be present in the gospel for the gospel to be the gospel? Number one, a substitutionary atonement by blood. And number two, a resurrection. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham was taught the importance of substitutionary atonement and resurrection. You remember the story of Genesis 22? God tells Abraham, take your only son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and you are to sacrifice him up there on the mountain. Genesis 22, 13 through 14. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. That's the key word there in the Genesis text, instead of his son, in the place of his son, as a substitute for his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In this scene, Abraham is preached the gospel by God, showing him the need for a substitutionary blood atonement. The gospel's being preached to Abraham in that moment. But also resurrection is being preached. The resurrection is being preached. Well, how do you know that, Pastor Sean? Well, there's a clue in the Genesis chapter 22 narrative. If you go back and read it and look at verse 5, there's a clue there. But the writer of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here's the key verse, verse 19. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What did Abraham know? If I kill my son, I don't understand it, God. I'm not sure why you're calling me to do this, but I'm believing you. If I kill my son, I know you can bring him back from the dead. There will be a resurrection. So in the the Isaac narrative here, in Genesis chapter 22, God preaches the gospel to Abraham. Shows him the need for a blood, substitutionary atonement, and a resurrection. What do we have in the gospel? We have Jesus dying as a substitutionary atonement and rising again three days later. Now you pair that picture with the idea that the gospel was preached to Abraham and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. What Paul's point is, listen, God's inclusion of the Gentiles into the plan of salvation has always been God's plan from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, Abraham, you were a Gentile before you were a Jew. And you were saved by faith. It's always been God's plan. It's not just the Jewish people. It's always been God's plan from the very beginning to include all those who would have faith in the Messiah. Whether it's in a type and shadow preached to Abraham way back in the day, or whether it's you sitting here hearing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now what's argument number four? Paul rounds out this whole thing. Here's argument number four. By faith alone... We receive the blessing of Abraham. Okay, what's the blessing of Abraham? Namely, being declared righteous by God. Paul's got a train of thought here. Abraham's my test case. He was saved by grace alone through faith alone. Number two, the true children of Abraham are those who also have grace alone through faith alone. Number three, it's been God's plan from the very beginning to have those Gentiles included. And number four, as a matter of fact, when you believe in Christ alone, you receive the blessing that Abraham received. What was that blessing? He was being counted righteous. Now, for Abraham, it was a nation. It was the promised land. It was a lot of material blessings. But for us, the blessing that Paul's been talking about, and we'll talk about this next week, not only is it just the blessing of being counted righteous before God, but as we'll see next week, the blessing is also receiving the, the Holy Spirit. But for right now, it's the blessing of being declared not guilty before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So what's one of the greatest blessings you and I could ever experience? It's being declared permanently, eternally, solidly righteous before God, accepted before God, not guilty before God, all your sins forgiven, past, present, and future because Jesus Christ was the substitute who died in your place and three days later rose again and you've placed your faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, just leave that, leave that screen up there real quick. Verse 1, we have peace. When you trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you have peace with God, which means that before that, you were not at peace with God. You were alienated from God. You were separated from God. You were at war with God. But when you trust Jesus for salvation, you are reconciled into a right relationship with God. You have peace. Not only that, let's go to the next verse. We also have obtained access. You have access to God. You can go directly to God. You have the freedom to be in God's presence. The way it's worded in the original language is that Jesus ushers us into the presence of the king. He gives us an introduction to God's very throne room. We have access, and not only that, we stand in grace. You stand in grace. It's a permanent standing in grace. You'll never lose that grace. You'll always have that grace. You will always be adopted into God's family. And then what does it say at the very end of the verse? We rejoice in the hope and glory of God. Here's here's my burden. Justification by faith alone is more than just a doctrine. We talk about about bank accounts and this and that and legal verdicts and not being declared. uh, You know, all these different things that we talk about. Yes, theologically that's true, but if it doesn't somehow work its way down into your heart and bring joy and assurance and peace with God, you're not living in the freedom of your justification by faith alone. Abraham was the man of faith. Notice what it says there, verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You're blessed if you have faith like Abraham. Let me issue you a warning here this morning. The Bible, and we'll look at this in more detail next week, the Bible talks about blessings and curses. The opposite of being blessed is being cursed. If you have faith in Jesus, you're blessed. If you don't have faith in Jesus, if you die without faith in Jesus, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, you're not blessed, but you're, you're cursed. And Jesus said it this way in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you don't believe in Jesus, God's wrath, God's justice, God's curse remains on you. So you need to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation to receive that blessing. I was tempted to ask you all to stand at this point and get your arms ready. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right, you know, do the turn. We sang that song as a kid, right? Some of you are like, oh, I love that song. We sang that as a kid. While it's a cool little ditty, it rings so true theologically. If you have faith in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, Abraham's your father because he had that type of faith. 
He had faith in the promise of a coming Messiah. You're not an Israelite. You're a Gentile. But as a Gentile, you have trusted in the promised Messiah, and you can say, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. So what's the response to being a child of Abraham? Praise the Lord. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had daughters, said Father Abraham. I am one of them because I've trusted in Jesus Christ, and so are you if you trust in Jesus Christ. What's our response to that? Let's just praise the Lord. Sometimes all you can do when you realize you've been accepted by Jesus is just to fall on your knees and praise. That's the only response you can do. Let's just praise the Lord. Let's just thank the Lord that he's accepted me. Let's just praise the Lord that he's forgiven me. Let's just praise the Lord that all of my sins have been credited to Jesus and all of his righteousness has been credited to me and I forever stand accepted before a holy God. What can you do? Can you earn it? Can you deserve it? Can you go out and try to improve it? No, all you can do is let's just praise the Lord. All you can do is worship. All you can do is fall on your face. So do you rejoice in being accepted? Are you humbled by this blessing of Father Abraham? Do you live in the freedom of this blessing? Do you live in the security of this blessing? I hope you do. And I hope we can leave this place singing the song, Let's Just Praise the Lord. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want you to spend some time in silence praising the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. Giving glory to the Lord for the blessing of being accepted and righteous before him like Father Abraham was. And we are so thankful that you have given us a picture in the Old Testament of a man of faith, Abraham. And Lord, we, we wonder how we would respond if we had no children and we were way past childbearing age and you took us out at the night sky and said, look at all the stars, that's going to be your offspring. Most of us would probably say, yeah, right, God. We would disbelieve. But Abraham simply believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Lord, help us to have that type of faith. A helpless, utter dependence upon you, that we believe you at your word just because you're God. And Lord, help us to live in the blessing of having all of our sins forgiven and knowing that we have peace with God, we have grace upon grace, we're accepted, we're righteous, not because of anything that we've done or anything that we've earned or anything that we've produced, but simply because we've had faith alone in Christ alone and we've received it as a free gift of grace alone. Let's just praise the Lord. Lord, help us to leave this place praising you, thanking you, living a life of joy because of the forgiveness we've received. And Lord, help us to go out and tell as many people as we can about how they can have 
hope and joy so that that vision of the final day when all tribes, tongues, and nations and people are around the throne, Lord, we would be part of that in ushering in the nations through our gospel witness, through our missions, through our evangelism, through sharing as we leave this place. Help us not to keep this to ourselves, but to share it with everyone we come in contact with so that everyone we know can experience the peace, the joy, the hope of being accepted and forgiven and righteous before you. Thank you for your grace in our lives. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.